Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles in front of you. That will be page 512 for the hardcover Bible or 395 if you have a softcover Bible. Matthew 7, we're going to start reading in verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let us close our eyes in prayer and ask the Lord for help. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this morning, Lord, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the celebration of your Son and the work he did on the cross. Now, Lord, as we hear his words here, open our hearts and open our minds to receive it gladly. Lord, help me in the exposure Exposition of your word, Lord. Help me with my weakness. Help me so that your word may be proclaimed truly and fully. We ask for your help, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds this morning and will help us to study and learn more from your word and to act upon it. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what if you're not really saved? What if your destiny is actually hell? What if everything is said and done, your life is over, and you meet Jesus face to face, and you hear these words urged to you, I never knew you. What if all along your life, you actually was just, you were just deceiving yourself? Friend, beloved, are you saved today or you're just self-deceiving yourself? You're just leaving a, a delusion, a great Christian delusion. Now we look here today, we are confronted with the end of the Sermon of the Mount, an iconic sermon of our Lord and Savior. Most Christians love previous parts of this sermon, you know, love your enemies, the Beatitudes. But here our Lord ends with a warning. He starts in verses 13 of chapter 7, if you look there, talking about the two ways of eternity. There are only two ways. There's no middle, middle ground. Either you are saved or you're lost. Either you go through the narrow gate or through the wide gate. And notice there that our Lord says that many will go by the wide gate. In verses 15 to 20, he warns us that not everything we hear is actually from God. He warned us that there will be, and there have been a lot, of false prophets, but that we should be aware, and we should test them by their fruits. Now in verses 21 to 23, our Lord, and this is the study, we are gonna study this passage today, our Lord warns us about self-deception. And notice that he says that many will be self-deceived. 
Now here, here, he's dealing with a type of self-deception that is unique to Christians. We understand there are a lot of types of self-deception in terms of your spiritual destiny. Unbelievers have a self-deception. They, they, they really trust that what they are doing is going to save them. And this is a form of self-deception. But our Lord here is not dealing with that. Our Lord is dealing with a type of self-deception among those who know him, who know our Lord as Jesus Christ as their Lord. Those who have experimented wonderful works in their lives. And those who have worked for Christ and for the furtherance of his kingdom. And this, my friend, is the type of danger we are subject to. I am, you are. Especially I, in this case. Don't think that I'm excluded from this. If you're here today, and I think you are at least a sympathizer of Christianity, you're in danger of this. Christianity, as many people think, there are no dangers when you become a Christian. There are actually many dangers. When you become a Christian, and our Lord points here, you should be aware. You should be aware you're not trusting in certain things because they can lead you to deceive yourself. And here I put myself and I preach myself today to myself because I am in danger of that as well. So I ask you, let us go through this and see the three dangers of Christianity. The three dangers of Christianity. If we look at verse 21, our Lord warns us, first saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 22, he further explains that, saying that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but he will say, I'll never knew you. Notice here the repetition of Lord. These people come in the last day, and they have a, a they address Jesus in a particular way. They don't use rabbi. They don't say master, master. They don't say teacher, teacher. They don't say good and uh, good and charismatic preacher. No, no, they know Jesus as Lord. They have the right knowledge, even orthodoxy. They have knowledge and they use that knowledge, they trust that knowledge to get them closer to God. When they are confronted with their eternal destiny, at the end of their journey, the only thing they can think of is that they know Jesus as Lord. After all, isn't that a good, isn't that a good thing? I know all the theology. They probably were very sure of their convictions, of their faith. Lord, Lord. Now, knowledge of God, friend, cannot save. Satan himself knows a lot about God. You remember when he tempts Jesus? He tempted Jesus. He had the knowledge. He had an A-plus in theology and scripture. Many Christians would be really taken back by how much Satan knows about scripture. And yet, he is a rebel. He doesn't want to subject himself to God. In fact, if you turn to me to Mark 1, I want to show you something. In Mark 1, we have an encounter. Jesus has an encounter in verse 23 of Mark 1. With a man with an unclean spirit. Mark 1, 23. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, 
Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Now pay attention to the declaration here of the evil spirit. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In James 2.19, the Apostle James talks about this, that demons have the right knowledge about God, and even they tremble because of their knowledge about God. But that doesn't mean they're subjected to God's, to God's sovereignty over them. That doesn't mean that they are doing God's will. These people here in Matthew that Jesus is talking about, that we'll meet in the last day, they trusted in their knowledge. Lord, Lord! And yet their knowledge about God and about Christ wasn't able to save them. Now, friend, don't get me wrong. True salvation will be followed by a correct knowledge of who Jesus is. If you're born again, the Spirit will teach you things to show you things in the Word of God, and you get to an understanding of Jesus. I'm not saying that that's wrong. Remember the thief on the cross? What does he say to Jesus? He turns to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In a short span of a few hours, that man went from being a completely wretched man without any hope to meeting the Savior recognizing him as his savior and having the assurance coming out of the lips of the savior well today you'll be with me in paradise so the holy spirit and the heart of a believer will teach the believer things about god true things about god and even in first corinthians 12 paul tells us that calling jesus christ as lord can be taken as evidence that somebody is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. But profession of faith is unlabeled to save somebody. Only the possession of faith in Christ and faith in His work can save somebody. That alone is not assurance of salvation, it's a result of salvation. But friend, if you are relying on that as your assurance of salvation, think again. Think again. Now let us look at the second danger that our Lord exposes here. Second danger. And here we go to verse 22. Notice the list of things. They say to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. Notice here, the form of negative used here in the Greek actually expects a positive answer. They expect Jesus is going to say, yeah, I know you've done that. They have an expectation that Jesus is going to say, yeah, surely you have prophesied. You have cast out demons. You have done many, many wonders. But they don't get that answer. Notice that the, the activities here are of a higher supernatural nature. They have selected specifically things that are of higher supernatural nature. They've selected prophecy. Prophecy in the Bible is a very special thing. Prophecy, either by telling the future 
only in a way that God can know, or telling something, a hidden information that only God can know. That in the Bible is always a sign that God is working in you. But it doesn't mean that God has saved you. They talk about casting out demons. Who, who wouldn't want to have that, right? Some of the apostles had that power. Casting out demons. Having the fallen angels submit to your authority because you are in the name of Christ. They talk about doing many wonders. And here, the word here in the Greek is the word from which we get the English dynamite. It's a lot of power, especially miraculous power. So they have a, a they probably have a lot of stories to tell of how they, they did this, how they prophesied, how they, when they casted out demons, or how many times or how many ways did they perform these wonderful miracles or wonders? But they were self-deceiving themselves. They trusted that was assurance of their salvation. They thought because they have done all of that, because they have seen God working, they were sure they were spared. Friend, God can use anyone for his marvelous purposes. And I want to show you throughout the Bible here, a few examples of that. Remember that back in Numbers, when the Israelites, there's this figure that we meet in the narrative, Balaam. Balaam was called a prophet of God, or actually diviner of God. And Balaam has a few encounters with God, talking back and forth to God. He's hired by a king to curse the people of Israel. And he actually, at a certain point in the narrative, we're not going to read the whole narrative, but at a certain point in the narrative, Balaam prophesied, he prophesies a true prophecy about the people of Israel. He's used by God to tell something about the future of Israel that actually turned out to be true. Yet, in every lease, we see Balaam's name listed after that event. Balaam is listed as an unrighteous person, a deceiver, because he used his access to God to get profit to himself. He then told, um, deceived Israel and tried to make Israel sin uh, and uh, participate in idol worship and uh, sexual immorality. And Balaam is listed in both in the Old Testament and in 2 Peter and James as a deceiver, an ungodly person, yet he was used by God to prophesy. Now turn to me to John 11, and I want to show a New Testament example of somebody that prophesied, was used by God to say something true that only God could know, and yet we have no evidence he was born again. John 11, when uh, the Jews start plotting against Jesus, and this is when they're getting serious, very serious about their plot. We read here in verse 47, and we meet a, a particular character here. 
John 11, 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gather a council and said, what shall we do? With this man, that is Jesus, works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now here's our character. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Note verse 51. Now this he did not, he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas, in a meeting to kill Jesus, he says, oh yeah, sure. He says without realizing it, but he says, Jesus should die so that we would, so that he would die and that the whole nation would be, would be spared, would be saved. Of course, he wanted it for his own political purposes. And here, he had no evidence of being born again. He actually was trying to kill Jesus, but was used by God to prophesy. Now, prophesying, casting out demons, performing wonders can be divinely inspired, but that gives you no assurance of salvation. Your eternal destiny has nothing to do with how much you are used by God, because he has used Many in the past. He has used ungodly people, godly people, animals, elements of nature. That in itself is no assurance of salvation. So we have the danger of trusting in the wonders has got, that God has done to you and through you. That's a danger we have our Lord pointing out to us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now let us turn to a third danger in this Little, little text we have here. And I want you to notice in the same verse 22, the same answer that these people give to Jesus. Notice how many things they do. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. And done many wonders in your name. They claim to have done many things in Jesus' name. And the phrase here, in your name, could be also taken as for your sake. Thinking we're done for you, through you, by you, because of you. They have done many things. The list is, this is probably only a summary of the many things they did for the Lord and for his kingdom. So here's one danger, the danger, another danger of trusting in the work you have done for God. These three examples are selected examples of the highest services that can be rendered to the Christian cause. In fact, if you turn to Luke 9, you see that Jesus himself gave authority to many people during his ministry to do the same thing, to announce his kingdom, to announce his ministry. Luke 9, at a certain point in our Lord's earthly ministry, he sent out his 12 disciples. 
and he gave them power to do certain things. Let's read here in Luke 9, verse 1. Then he, that is Jesus, called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So this is Jesus empowering the twelve apostles to do part of that list. You see? He's giving them authority over demons and also authority to kill diseases. And this was to be done before Jesus came and preached to that place, sort of to announce his, his ministry. And these signs were used as a proof that they were doing something by the power of God, in the name of God. Now, if you turn a page over and you still look in Luke, verse, uh, in chapter 10, Jesus sends more people. The disciples go, they do that, they come back to Jesus, and then Jesus sends 70, 70 people, two by two. Let's read in verse, the first verse of chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. He sent the 70. We're not told that he gave authority of them, to them to, to do the same things that the apostles did, but we have a little account. They debriefed the Lord in verse 17. What happened? Look at verse 17. When they come back, they say, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. They are really surprised. Probably because Jesus didn't tell them that this would happen, but it ended up happening. And in Jesus, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is one of the only places in the whole Bible where Jesus tells his disciples to not rejoice over something. Don't rejoice over the power that is shown through you or to you. Rejoice over your salvation. But don't rejoice over the power that is given to you in my name. There, Jesus is pointing to the same thing here that he's pointing here at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. God can work through you. You can work to God, but don't trust in that. There's something else you can trust, not this. It's a danger we incur if we trust on our own work for the Lord. Now, doing things for God and in the name of God doesn't mean we are safe from eternal wrath. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about that in the last days, some would arise being self-proclaimed Christians, but they wouldn't be true Christians. They would have a form of godliness, but would deny all the power that comes with being godly. So this is among us. And we should be aware if we're not one of them. Think of Judas, Judas Iscariot, an interesting story. Was called among the twelve, walked with our Lord like the other twelve, 
saw the same miracles, Jesus walking in the water, the multiplication of bread, the healing of the sick, raising up of Lazarus, and many other signs and wonders that we have no idea happened because they weren't recorded. He saw, like the other 12. And Jesus, in the Last Supper, he turns to his disciples and says, you know, one of you will betray me. And none of the other 12, the 11, none of them say, oh yeah, sure it's Judas, because he's sort of a not so devout apostle, you know? We didn't see him killing anybody. We didn't see him pay attention to Jesus. He has a, a weird theology, you know, Judas. Maybe it's, perhaps it's Judas. No, no, no. We read that, that every single one of them thought Jesus was talking about them. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Peter thought, is it I, Lord? And he had a, a little back history with not being very straightforward with his answer sometimes. John thought, is it I, Lord? James thought, is it I, Lord? And all the other 11 thought, is it I, Lord? And at last, Jesus said, is it I, Lord? And Jesus said, yes, he said it. Judas walked like the other apostles. He was just like the other ones. But yet, he betrayed the Lord. He was self-deceived. He probably did many wonders. He probably did many things for the Lord. But that wasn't any sign that he, his heart was being transformed. It was just a sign that God was using him. God can use anyone. Now let us look at the Lord's response in Matthew 7. Turn down to verse 23. So they come with this. They come with their claims. They are the doorsteps of heaven. And they say all they have to say. And the answer they get is not the yes that they were expecting. Not the come here. I knew you were coming. I prepared something for you. Or not. We were waiting for you. You've been doing so much. Oh yeah, your theology is so good. Come in. No, no. Jesus answered them, pointing to the very problem. The very problem they had. Notice three things. I never use the answer that Jesus gives. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. That's the first thing. Now, of course, Jesus knew about their existence. It's not this that he's implying here. He knew it, they existed. He knows everything. He knows even what is in the heart of, of people. But here, our Lord is using knowledge in a specific biblical sense. We read this morning that Adam knew his wife and she conceived the son. It's in that sense of a relationship, intimate. It's in the same way that God in Genesis 18 talks about Abraham. He says that he knew Abraham. When he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he talks about, oh, I've, I've known Abraham. Why shouldn't I tell him what I'm going to do? It's not that he knew about Abraham's existence. It's that he knew him intimately. He had a personal, intimate relationship with Abraham himself, who, by the way, is, is called a few times in, in the word as 
the friend of God. Abraham was the friend of God. In John 10, our Lord uses this to talk about his sheep, his disciples. He says that he is the good shepherd and that he knows his sheep, sheep and that he is known by his own. It's both ways. Jesus knows them and they know him truly, not just had knowledge, true knowledge, God's knowledge. You see, what matters is not what we say, not what we understand, not what we do. What matters is what God is doing in our hearts. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 13, it's a great example where Paul addresses a church, a body of believers. We sometimes read 1 Corinthians and think, what a mess, this church. They had conflicts, sexual immorality going around, and they didn't react. But then Paul points to something. They were a gifted church. In terms of giftness, they were gifted. They had many gifts. But then he points to a little problem that they had with their gifts. Look at here. First Corinthians 13, let's turn in the first verse. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy, see prophecy here again, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Oh, look at that, knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, look at that, deeds, works. And though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now this here, Paul is saying, if I had all of that, all the knowledge, all the gifts, all the works, but had not love, this is nothing. If you have a King James, you, you don't read love here. It's probably written charity. Because this is such a different kind of love that the translators thought love couldn't do it. So they chose charity, their choice. Why that? Because if you keep reading, it doesn't sound like the usual love. We talk about love, but this is not that kind of love. This is God's love. This is God's love in the heart of a person. A love of a totally different nature and character. So much so that love in the heart of a person suffers long, is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't parade itself. Only love in the heart of a person, love of God, doesn't puff him up. Only the love of God and God working in the heart of a person make them don't behave rudely, make them not seek their own, make them not be provoked, make them do not think evil. Only love in the heart of a person, love of God, can make them rejoice in truth and not rejoice in iniquity. Can make them bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. Only the love of God working in the heart of a person will never fail. It's not the love of, I love candy, I love chocolate. It's the love of God in the heart of a sinner. It's a powerful thing. Our Lord Jesus Christ refers this to being grafted in him. He uses the image of a vine and branches. In John 15, he talks about 
He being the vine and we the branches. He and those that abide in him bear much fruit. For without him, we cannot do anything. And he also talks, if we don't abide in him, we'll be cast out as a branch and wither. And then we'll be gathered and thrown into the fire and be burned. If you're not grafted in Christ, all our deeds are still unrighteousness. Look back at our, at our text in Matthew 7. So there is, I never knew you. That's the first part of the answer that our Lord gives to them. Second part, depart from me, get away from me, have nothing to do with you. And the third part is, you who practice lawlessness. You see, lawlessness is the very thing the work of Christ saves us from. Breaking the law. That's all God can see. If, you don't, if you're not in Christ, all God can see is that you're breaking the law. But those who are in Christ have already made him perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you're not in Christ, all that you do, all your best efforts are still filthy rags in the eyes of God. And that's what Jesus can only see in them. He doesn't see their theology. He doesn't see it's a good theology, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't see the wonderful work God is doing using them. He doesn't see the works they're doing. He only sees you're not in me. So from a purely human standpoint, these people here were irreproachable. They had the right profession of faith. The, they had the right works of faith. They even had supernatural signs that war, God was working through their ministry. But yet, despite their perfect, impressive Christian resume, they were not recognized as being Christ's own people. What about you, friend? Are you trusting in your knowledge about God? Do you think because you know things about God, you're closer to Him? Because you have an A-plus in theology. You're better than so-and-so. They don't know that. I know this. Or maybe it's because God has done many wonders in your life. You know, you have seen many miracles and wonderful things happening around you and through you. Now, perhaps you're saved because look at the many wonders you've been seeing around you. Are you trusting on the things you're doing for God? Oh yeah, you're here every Sunday. On time. Oh, you preach. Preach on Tuesday, you preach on Sunday. Or you're gonna just sing, you're gonna start singing in the choir, or you're gonna lead the choir. They're all good things. Don't, don't get me wrong, but they don't assure your salvation. Are you saved or self-deceived? Friend, none of these things can make you right with God. None can make you closer to Him. Only the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary can. And to close, I would like to read you Paul's plea for uh, the same, this same church, the Corinthian church, on 2 Corinthians 13. If you would hear the, the voice of the apostle and I'll make it my claim today, my plea to you in 2 Corinthians 13. 
And we're going to start in verse 5. This is what Paul says to a body of believers. Listen to this verse. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. I ask you that you consider these words and think. What are you trusting on? I hope you can say that you have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. But fastened to Jesus, the rock will not move. Grounded sure indeed in his wonderful love. But if not, today is the day to trust him. In spite of your wonderful Christian resume, I know many of you have beautiful, well-polished stories to tell of how many things God has done to you, how many things you have done to God. Or you can correct me in my theology. I probably said something wrong through the message. You can come and point chapter and verse where it went wrong. But friend, None of that is assurance of salvation. Only Christ and his work can save you. All the rest is a byproduct of the faith. Don't be distracted by the byproducts of the faith. Keep your eyes on the Savior. Let us pray. O Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful because we see Christ crucified. And to us, is an image of glory and of joy. What we could not do by our own deeds, by our own works, you did and provided it for us on the cross. We ask you, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and show us we are trusting in anything but him, in anything but his work. Lord, help us to examine our hearts. Help us to take these words and meditate on them throughout our week. So that we would not hear this, we would not hear, I never knew you from his lips. And Lord, help us to live in accordance with that hope and with that joy, knowing that we will be saved and bought and redeemed to live a holy life that praises you, that thanks you, that gives glory to you for everything you have done in our lives. We ask you that you would help us understand and take it in this word and that in everything your name would be praised and glorified and we ask all of this in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ and for his sake lord amen